Welcome to Auto Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor here at the supporting, supporting sponsor of Oncofarm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Thanks for tuning in today. We're going to talk about subcutaneous administration of monoclonal antibodies. Now, this is in the news recently because last week, February 28th, 2019, the FDA approved trastuzumab and hyaluronidase dash OYSK. So trastuzumab, a subcutaneous formulation that contains hyaluronidase. Go back to June 22nd of 2017, and we have rituximab and hyaluronidase approved. And you can go back and listen to the rituximab podcast from earlier this year. And I uh, got a question on Twitter about, well, I didn't hear any talk of the rituximab and hyaluronidase. Saving it for a later podcast. And we're going to talk about, uh, you know, sub-Q admin of monoclonal antibodies since we now have two on the market. These are both made by the same drug company, presumably the exact same technology to get them together. And the key thing here that allows subcutaneous administration is the enzyme hyaluronidase. And that's because we're going to see the drug administered is in a larger volume than you would typically would give for subcutaneous administration. You know, you ask the experts on drug administration, the nurses, uh, and some quick research will show that about two milliliters or two cc's, two cubic centimeters, is the most that you can comfortably give subcutaneously. <clears throat> You're going to see we give more than that with these drugs. The reason that you're able to administer more of more volume into the subcutaneous tissue is because the enzyme hyaluronidase, like hyaluronidase, hyaluronidase, uh, breaks down hyaluronin, which is a polysaccharide that makes up uh, the subcutaneous tissue, uh, the extracellular matrix of the subcutaneous tissue, and keeps it kind of rigid. And you can go to the rituximab and hyaluronidase drug company website. They have a little, little video showing how the enzyme breaks down some of this uh, maybe connecting tissue and basically allows the subcutaneous tissue to become uh, from somewhat rigid to more gel-like and that allows more volume to be absorbed in the subcutaneous tissue. And we're going to see why this uh, might be useful to some patients and whether or not you're an oncology uh, nerd like myself, maybe you sit on the pharmacy and therapeutics committee and you know that these drugs likely very expensive are going to be coming to a P&T committee meeting near you, and maybe you're not an oncology expert and want to know a little bit about what's the, the rationale here. So we're going to do that hopefully in about 10 minutes. So we're going to go through and compare these two side by side, and at the same time where it makes sense, compare them to the IV formulations. So with rituximab, you have to give the first rituximab dose as IV. And then if they tolerate it well, you can do the sub-Q dose thereafter. For trastuzumab, you can do sub-Q with the first dose. Now the dose, the dosing here is, is fixed, so it comes in a single vial size uh, for trastuzumab, and there are two vial sizes for rituximab. So the rituximab dosing is 1,400 milligrams slash 23,000 units. That's for the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnoses, follicular lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Or 1,600 milligrams and 26,000 units for CLL. Uh, the dose for trastuzumab is 600 milligrams slash 10,000 units. Now, you'll notice if you do some math, it's the exact same ratio in milligrams to units, point, 0 0.06 milligrams of antibody to one unit of hyaluronidase. So the ratio here must be important. If we look at that trastuzumab dose of 600 milligrams, there's no loading dose. So that's roughly the equivalent of six mg per kg if somebody were 100 milligrams. And I could do that math uh, with just one calculator. 
Now, we're going to see later that the bioavailability of the sub-Q use of these drugs is not 100%. So it's not actually going to be the equivalent of 6 mg per kick. Now, there is no loading dose like you typically would do with trastuzumab. Whether you're, we don't typically do the every other week dosing where you do a 4 mg per kilogram loading dose and then 2 mg per kg every other week. We tend to do 8 mg per kg and then 6 mg per kg every 3 weeks starting 3 weeks later. In this case, there's no loading dose. And as you would expect, there's actually less drug exposure in cycle 1. So the cycle 1 area under the curve through 21 days is lower for the sub-Q dosing of trastuzumab compared to the IV dosing of trastuzumab. This comes from the PI for the new product. But if you look at the area under the curve uh, for the 21 days after the seventh dose, you see there's a higher AUC in the sub-Q uh, administration than in the IV. So you're relatively underdosing these folks for the first few cycles. Now in an adjuvant setting, that may not make a difference. For a metastatic breast cancer setting, we don't know, but perhaps. Um, back to the dosing of rituximab. So 1,400 milligrams, uh, it's roughly 700 milligrams per meter squared if the patient had a BSA of two. Uh, that's a lot higher than the typical 375 milligram dose. Uh, but we're gonna see later that with the bioavailability, it, it, it's pretty close. All right, so that's the dosing. Now we gotta get the drug to the, to the, to, into the person. It's where things get a little uncomfortable. So um, for rituximab, it needs to be given subcutaneously in the abdomen over, quote, five to seven minutes if you look up in a, just briefly. Now, you got to look a little bit closer. So the lower dose for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, 1,400 milligrams, is 11.7 milliliters in volume, and that needs to be given over at least five minutes. The higher dose comes as 13.4 milliliters, has to be given over seven. So it's not five to seven. It's five for the lower dose, seven minutes for the higher dose. And again, that's a lot more volume than the typical two milliliters we, we give subcutaneously. But we're, uh, again, the hyaluronidase uh, allows for that. <clears throat> for the subcutaneous trastuzumab, it's a five mil dose given over two to five minutes. And you could do that over two to five minutes. So here comes the lure or the attraction of sub-Q use of monoclonal antibodies. So, you know, the loading dose of trastuzumab is at least 90 minutes. Other doses you can do is as fast as 30. Versus a, you know, a two to five minute sub-Q injection, patients can be in and out pretty quickly. Even more advantageous potentially for patients with rituximab, where they're going to have to get their first dose, but IV, and let's say they tolerate it. You're still looking at, you know, at best a 90 minute infusion if you use the most rapid infusion protocol. Um, to get safely receive your IV rituximab, and for other centers, that's going to be you know probably a couple hours. With sub Q, you're talking seven minutes. That is followed by an obligatory 15-minute observation period based on the package insert, and that's not mentioned in the trastuzumab package insert. So you're talking let's round up to 30 minutes total time in clinic for your rituximab if you're able to tolerate it sub Q after that first IV dose. <clears throat> now. The bioavailability is not 100%, so some of the antibody uh, gets absorbed, broken down, not absorbed, but gets broken down or degraded prior to getting into the blood. So the bioavailability is 77% of the IV product for sub-Q trastuzumab and lower for sub-Q uh, rituximab, 64% of the IV. So if you take 64% of 700 milligrams per meter squared, which would be the dose of the 1400 milligram dose of rituximab, if you had a BSA of two, which most Americans do, even at our leanest, um, you know, that ends up being a, kind of a, a bioavailability adjusted dose of 450 milligrams per meter squared for BSA of two, 
a little bit closer to our typical dose, which is 375 milligrams per meter squared. And you can go back and listen to the first Rituximab podcast to see where that dose came from. It didn't come from a well-designed, you know, phase one dose finding site to figure out the best dose of Rituximab. <clears throat> so those are kind of the basics of, of the antibodies in the sub-Q formulation. Big question, are they, do they work as well? Well, they appear to work as well. So for sub-Q rituximab, we have similar complete response rate and progression-free survival and overall survival, maybe even trends in favor of the sub-Q rituximab, but certainly nothing to say that they're inferior. And then for subcutaneous trastuzumab, we see pathologic complete response rates that are similar. So that's a surrogate marker um, for you know, drug activity. We don't have longer follow-up necessarily. Uh, do we have uh, the same side effects? So we seem to have the same side effects. Maybe there's a little bit more cough and more upper, upper respiratory tract infection in the sub rituximab compared to IV rituximab. Maybe that's artifact. Um, a little bit more cough, perhaps like 12% versus 8% with sub-Q trastuzumab. Maybe that's artifact as well. Maybe there is something to, to more cough with the hyaluronidase and sub-Q administration. Uh, we don't really know. From a tolerability standpoint, both of these studies, they're the same drug company, so not surprisingly the studies are designed pretty similarly, had cross, had a subset study that was a crossover tolerability study. So they went from sub-Q to IV uh, or vice versa. So you had some patients that had the sub-Q and some who had the IV, and they asked them, which did you prefer? And for both sub-Q antibodies, in, in, you know, in excess or above more than whatever you want to say, 80% to 85% in both the rituximab and trastuzumab groups preferred sub-Q drug over IV drug. And the most common reason was less time getting the drug infused. Now, 10 to 11% in both rituximab and trastuzumab crossover studies preferred the IV formulation. And the most common reason for that was it was more comfortable than having, you know, 5 to 12 mils of drug giving subcutaneously. So some patients may not like the sub-Q, even though uh, they can get in and out of clinic faster. So the question now comes, if you're in the PNT committee meeting, uh, what do we do? So one of the things you would have to likely consider, and I am not a, you know, uh, a numbers guy when it comes to, uh, to dollars and cents, but you'd have to figure out, you know, how much rituximab do we give? and how many more patients can we see per unit time uh, to, you know, it would be great for the patients to come in, but the drug's gonna cost a whole lot potentially. So you have to consider the cost and how much chair time would be saved by switching to these, to these agents. Um, and there's some, for the sub-key rituximab, some slightly different dosing schedules. Uh, for example, weekly for CLL or every three week for, uh, you know, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma like with RCHOP. And the sub-key trastuzumab is every three weeks as well. Now, for me as a pharmacist, these are fixed doses. We do not currently give fixed dose rituximab in most cases or trastuzumab. We, it's weight-based. So what I'm very curious about, and you know, at my big, you know, annual meeting I go to at Hopa in a couple of years, at patients who have or centers who have switched to sub-Q rituximab, I wonder if they're going to see some differences in either efficacy or toxicity based on weight. So, for example, do obese patients do poorer on a fixed dose, or do uh, very underweight patients maybe do better or have more toxicity uh, because they're getting um, more drug per weight? Same thing with trastuzumab, especially with regards to, say, you know, cardiotoxicity and the decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction. So interesting. Um, will we see more in the future? I don't know. I would guess yes. Um, 
and certainly you know does provide some some advantage to patients getting this uh, but there are some some maybe long-term uh, not long-term but some safety concerns whenever a new drug comes out it's not surprising you can almost you know bet on it is that after time after the drugs been used by you know x thousand number of patients some some strange side effects pop up that we were not able to predict uh, and I'm, I'm a conservative person by nature when it comes to using new drugs um, I'm not always excited to be the first but then again I don't want to be the last to be involved in using a new drug uh, so certainly we'll learn more as these drugs come out and I encourage you if you you know you have PGY2 oncology residents that have switched to this this becomes a great residency project you know a nice pre and post uh, if you've adopted one of these agents at your institution and I, I encourage folks to uh, to do those projects and publish those results and even if you confirm that it's safe like the FDA thinks that's reassuring for everyone else uh, who maybe is hesitant if they if they are hesitant about switching to sub-Q monoclonal bodies. Well thanks for listening uh, it's always great to have this one-sided conversation with you uh, I can be a little bit more than one-sided you can tweet at me at farmdeepnib on Twitter you can find the podcast at oncofarmpod on Twitter and Instagram uh, you can email me um, you know, you can just search, you know, Oncofarm, ETSU, Oncology, Pharmacy. You'll find my email address. Um, send me an email with what you'd like to hear about in the future, what you like about the pod. Find us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a nice review. And until you hear from me again, remember, doses matter. Doses matter.